0: So now I'm going to read for us um, our text for the morning, which is Exodus 5 um, all the way to Exodus 6:13. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foreman of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, whatever you can, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all the task of making your bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task, each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment." I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt.
1: Good morning. We are, you know, this looks way too short when Tyler is up here, and then it's just right. Um, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Exodus, and we're spending the fall looking at who God is and who we are. So we're asking questions like what are our biggest problems, and how does God deal with them? Uh, in other words, we're learning about the God who saves. Uh, today's passage. Is a turning point in the Exodus story. Uh, we see Pharaoh escalate the problem. Uh, the people of Israel despair. But this is the last time that Pharaoh will appear to have the upper hand. Um, after Pharaoh uh, flexes his muscles, so to speak, God says, okay, now you will see. Now you will see. After this passage, God flexes back. Um, wasn't even meant as a joke. Um, So as we look at the story today, we're going to look at three things. The escalation of evil, the people's response, and God's response. So the escalation of evil, the people's response, and God's response. Um, As we jump in, let's pray. God, um, we thank you that you are a good God, and we pray that you would open the skies And rain down us lord if we have fallow ground that needs to be broken up we pray that you would you would do that work um that we could receive your word for our good god give us power to tear down idols and to turn and worship you alone in jesus name i pray amen okay so first the escalation of evil so god says let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness and Pharaoh responds with a big, absolutely not. Um, he escalates in a major way. So the Israelites are enslaved and forced to make bricks. And bricks in Egypt were made from, from mud. And they're they're bigger than the bricks that we use. They're not those Chicago style. Um, so um, you had to add straw to give the bricks strength. So Pharaoh says, no more straw. Uh, make the same number as bricks as before. But I'm not going to give you straw to do it. You have to go out yourselves and get the straw and then make just as many bricks as before. And not only that, but Pharaoh says uh, he commands the taskmasters to beat the foremen if they don't make as many bricks as before, if they don't produce enough. So produce fewer bricks, you get beaten. Um, This is like when I tell my students, Score just as well on the exam, but I'm not going to teach you, and I'm not going to give you material to read from. And when your scores drop, whoosh. um, So, of course, um, the Israelites don't produce as much as before. So that's the situation. Their labor has been made much more difficult, and their treatment is much worse. Israel was already in a bad situation, but now it's escalated. So I want us to consider two key issues here. So first, why did Pharaoh escalate? Because look, Moses' request is not that big of a deal. Okay? Three days, feast, come back. And, you know, the Egyptians believed there were many gods, so it wouldn't be so unreasonable for the God of the Hebrews to say, I need a feast now. Okay, Um, And if you look at verse 3, Moses says... If you don't let us go, if we don't go, then pestilence and sword will fall upon the Hebrews. Right? He's saying, plague is going to happen to us if you don't let us go. So even if Pharaoh were just a purely self-interested slave driver, um, you know, he doesn't want that to happen to his workforce. So here's his choice. Lose three days of labor or have a massive plague wipe out a bunch of his workers. Right. Not a tough call. Um, so why does Pharaoh absolutely refuse to let them go for a temporary three day trip? Now, remember, the story of Exodus is setting up a big showdown um, between Pharaoh, who is the false God, king of Egypt, and the Lord, the only true and living God, the king of all creation. Um, Pharaoh demands supreme and complete authority over egypt he's got a strong hand that rules absolutely over the land so if there's a god of the hebrews who demands that pharaoh's slaves do something that god's a threat right because that means that pharaoh does not have complete control over his slaves if god can say let my people serve me or i'm going to strike them down then pharaoh's control is not absolute And this is why in verse nine, Pharaoh explains his tactics. He explains why he's escalating. He says, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So Pharaoh increases the oppression so that the people will not listen to Moses. That's the strategy. If the burdens become unbearable, the people will pay no regard to God's call to worship him. Pharaoh knows that if the Hebrews serve a God that Pharaoh does not control, then Pharaoh cannot control them. So he tells them, these are lies. If you listen to lies, I will punish you and make your life miserable until you stop listening to the lies. Why is this significant to us? Remember, Pharaoh becomes a representative for all the false gods vying for control in our lives. Pharaoh is a real dude who's really oppressing real people in a real way and God really cares about the real injustice. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Um, But Pharaoh is also a symbol of all the idols that oppress us and Pharaoh is animated by the ultimate false God. And this is why this matters for us. Every single one of us There are idols in our lives that are vying for complete, absolute, supreme control over us. Our idols are the things that drive us. Um, Or if you're wondering what your idols might be, you can ask some questions. What are you devoted to? What do you find most impressive? What would you go to any length to have or to achieve? Where do your time, your talents, your resources go? Um, Or, this might be more helpful, when do you feel the most crushed or dejected? When do you become disproportionately anxious and broken over things that happen? The answer to those questions are your idols. And when God exerts his power over and against our idols, our idols freak out. So, for example... Um, let's consider some of the idols that we grant power to. So you might say, what I really need in life, what will make me feel secure, is to have enough money to retire comfortably. Okay, so your idol is, is comfort or control. You have other things in your life that are important too, um, but comfort is really the thing that drives you. So if you're young and just starting out, um, then you're looking at careers that will allow you to build up enough wealth to be comfortable. Or you're at the end of your career, then you're looking at saving and spending in ways that preserve what you have. So either case, what happens when you read the Bible and you see that God says, give sacrificially, give it till it hurts, spend your time and your resources on others? Well, your comfort idol is threatened. Your wealth idol is at risk. Um, if what you really live for is comfort, then you're worshiping wealth or you're worshiping independence. And so what do you do when you hear Jesus say you can't serve both God and money? Well, you have no choice. You have to deceive yourself because you're busy worshiping money and Jesus just told you not to, and you have to keep doing it. You don't really let God's word penetrate your heart and you increase your burdens Because, you know, if you really hear it, your commitment to wealth and comfort, independence, whatever it is, is threatened. So maybe you twist the Bible or maybe you ignore it just enough so it doesn't have any teeth that can bite. Your idol is telling you the call to give, to live sacrificially, lying words. Don't listen. Or what if the most important thing in your life is being free? Not let anybody telling you what to do. Um, You'll come against, you know, just surprise. You'll come up against God's commands that restrict you. Um, You'll learn you can't live just however you want. Um, You don't belong to yourself. You were bought with a price. Um, You don't have the right to just choose anything you want. So what do you do? Lying words. Those don't apply to me. They don't apply to anybody anymore. If you really listen to God's words, well, you know, lying words, you double down on living for yourself. You challenge anybody who sees it otherwise. You know, what is it for you? Could be food or entertainment, the need to be approved by others, right? The need to feel a part of the inner ring, right? Do you desperately want to belong? And Do you break down at any perceived slight, anytime you feel like, I'm not good enough, I'm not in there? Whatever your idol is, we will freak out whenever it is threatened. Because the power behind the idol will freak out. So interestingly, do you know why the early Christians were persecuted by the Romans? Because socially, the the early Christians were fantastic citizens. Um, They took care of the poor christian and otherwise they took care of the sick and dying pagans better than the pagans did Um, they had communities of love compassion generosity they shared with each other Um, so what was the big deal well roman society was built on the belief that there were lots of pagan gods and everybody could have their own like portfolio of gods you know Um, you you know you can have your own set of gods that you worship Um, you can worship any gods as you want. Just don't tell other people they can't worship the set of gods that they choose. Okay. You can have your set. They can have their set. That's how everything works. Um, and at the top of this pagan structure was Caesar. And the declaration was Caesar was Lord. So the Christians show up and say, no, Jesus is Lord. And actually there's only one God and he alone is supreme over all these pagan gods and over Caesar. So naturally the Romans had to kill the church because Christianity was a threat to the social order because Caesar had to be supreme. He couldn't just coexist with Jesus. Whatever you are living for, It knows that Jesus is a threat. So when your idols are threatened, they will escalate. So second, how do our idols escalate oppression? Well, every false god makes promises they cannot keep. They promise us, if you have enough money, you'll be satisfied and fulfilled. Or if you're beautiful enough, if you're skinny enough, you'll be satisfied and fulfilled. Or if your family is perfect enough, if your spouse is hopelessly in love with you enough, you'll be satisfied and fulfilled. But these are lies. The human heart is built for so much more than just the good things God has created and given us. So, remember, why do we serve idols? You know, in the Old Testament, the Israelites don't worship Baal for the love of Baal because Baal's character is so wonderful and... You know, who can just help but think Baal is a wonderful guy? Um, You worship Baal because you want good crops. Right? And we don't worship money because we like the way the green stuff feels. We follow idols because of what they promise to deliver. What we really want is comfort or experience or some promise of meaning. We want to matter. And the idols we worship promise to deliver those things. So when your idols don't deliver, because they can't, what's the response? It's your fault. So let's look at verse 16 and 17. The foreman tell Pharaoh, "Look, Pharaoh, it's your fault that people can't make enough bricks. You're asking them to do something impossible. They can't deliver." And Pharaoh responds, "No, it's your fault. You are idle." twice," he says, "You are idle." You aren't delivering because you aren't working hard enough. And then he says, you make them rest from your burdens. Now, this is actually a perfect illustration of our relationship with our idolatry. Right, so the foremen correctly point out to Pharaoh. They say, you're asking for something that can't be done. And so this is like us realizing, wow, living for money, personal freedom, entertainment, we're asking it to deliver something that can't be done. At which point we should recognize and say, you know, yeah, they can't deliver. If we live for these things, they're not going to live up to the promises. These things can't deliver the hope and the meaning we need. But instead, the response, the idol is threatened. It's your fault. Right. Pharaoh says, it's not my fault. It's your fault. Pharaoh is the picture of oppressors in our lives. Right. His accusation is you make them rest from their burdens And that's the accusation. You can't ever stop. You must keep going. You must bear your burdens. Because whatever you live for, you can't ever stop. You'll never have enough wealth. You'll never have enough prestige. You'll never have enough personal freedom. Your body won't be good enough. Your family won't be good enough. Your leisure won't be exciting enough. It's never enough. Whatever you live for, it's never going to be enough. You can't ever rest. And if you question for a second the thing you're living for, the response is you're idle. Our idols always blame us. We're never enough. So when you put all your hope and fulfillment in your career and your career fails you, your career didn't fail you. You failed your career. You didn't try hard enough. Or when you put all your hope in your kids to satisfy you and fulfill all your longings and for whatever reason, your kids fail to feel that deep longing that you're expecting from them. Your kids didn't fail you. You failed your kids. You didn't try hard enough. Every idol in this world, you are never enough. That's the answer. You know, sometimes we wonder about the difference between guilt um, and shame, between godly sorrow or between like sorrow that leads to death. And it's hard to sort of tell the difference sometimes. It can be really hard to distinguish. So I want to consider this a sort of helpful schema. When you put your hope in an idol and it fails you, which is what's going to happen, godly sorrow would be this. How foolish of me to trust in this idol. I won't do it again. And we can feel bad about putting our trust in the idol. Shame is, I failed the idol. I'm a failure. So how can we respond with godly sorrow? Friends, there is only one true and living God that if you live for him, his words to you are, I'm enough. Right? Only Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. On the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. It is finished. Which also means, it's enough. Jesus is saying, I've paid it all. I'm enough. There's nothing more for you to do. The promise of the gospel is that Jesus has definitively bought you eternal rest. When you fail Jesus, and you will, Jesus forgives you. Every other idol will blame you. Every other idol will escalate, but only Jesus can forgive you and give you peace. So that's our first point. It's our longest point, the escalation of evil. So second, the people's response. So this is all happening, and it's fair to wonder, how are the people going to respond to the suffering? Because just last chapter, Moses come and talk to them, and they worship the Lord. Okay? Um, So what would suffering under Pharaoh do? Would it increase or decrease their desire to worship God? Um, There's a saying, the same sun that melts wax also hardens clay. How you respond to suffering and hardship depends on your heart. It can get harder. It can melt. So how do the people respond? So verse 21 and 22, the people say to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Pharaoh escalates. The people blame Moses, and Moses asks God, what is going on here? Um, An aside that's not an aside. It's not easy to be a leader. Okay, Moses is obeying God's command. He's doing what God told him to do. And the people don't respond by saying, wow, Moses, you know, that was hard. Confronting the most powerful man on earth. Man, obeying God's command. That's the, that took courage. Thanks for doing it. No, they say, the Lord look on you and judge. Right? You, Moses, you've made everything worse. Right. Pharaoh is clearly the one responsible for the escalation and the problems. But the people blame Moses. Of course, Moses, too, is confused. So in chapter three, God told Moses, he said, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So I suspect Moses heard this to mean I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and he's going to put up a fight, but it's like a speed bump on the road to progress, minor hiccup, and then come the wonders and deliverance, right? We're going to keep moving. So Moses did not expect this at all. And so Moses says two really important things, right? So first he says, God, why have you done evil to this people? And second, God, you have not delivered your people at all. Moses sees Pharaoh's actions and he says, God, this isn't right. Pharaoh did evil, but Moses says, God, you have done evil. God said Pharaoh would resist, but Moses says, this cannot be what you had in mind. Okay. In other words, this shouldn't be happening. And since it is happening, you're to blame. God, what do you have to say? Now, we're about to get an answer from God in chapter 6, but before we go there, I want to point out some some hidden assumptions that we have when we accuse God of evil, when we come to God like this, okay? So first, when we can't see a reason for what God does or allows, we assume there can't be one, okay? Right? So Moses asks why, and the implication is, I can't think of a good reason for this God, and uh, so there can't be one. Right, there are lots of really bad things that happen. Um, and one of the most natural human responses is to ask, why? Uh, you know, so this is an example of what some people call the problem of evil, which is how can a good God allow suffering and evil in this world? Right, the Israelites are in a really horrible situation, and you know, we experience horrible situations too. Right? We can ask why because we don't know why. Um, but often in our cry of why... There's often the accusation, I don't know why, God, and you owe me an explanation. Uh, I don't know why, because there isn't a good reason. But I want us to consider, we're talking about the God who created and sustains all things. Okay? So shouldn't such a God have reasons that are beyond our comprehension? Right? If God is really great and transcendent and high... Shouldn't we expect that a God like that would have purposes and the plans that are not only beyond what we could figure out, but just beyond what we have figured out? Just because we can't see a reason doesn't mean there isn't one. Um, second, if anything, this problem, right, the problem of evil, is evidence for God. What do I mean? Um, so Moses can look at what Pharaoh is doing, and he can turn to God, and he can say, where are you? But what could Moses possibly say if there were no God? Pharaoh escalates the evil, but why should it be any different? If there were no God over Pharaoh, then why shouldn't Pharaoh do whatever he wants, whatever he has power to do? If this world is all there is, and we look around and we see the way the world is, on what basis can we say it ought to be different? Right? If the world is all there is, then Pharaoh's supreme power is all there is. Why should be I be surprised that Pharaoh escalates evil to maintain control? If when you experience evil and suffering, you turn to God and say, "You could have stopped this, you should have stopped this." You know you can only feel this if you're right. If God is good and powerful. Because either you shouldn't be mad when you experience evil, because why should you expect a cold, dead world that randomly evolved without any purpose behind it, where the rule of nature is the strong, eat the weak? Why should you look at the world the way it is? And on what basis would you say it should be any different? So either that's the truth or our emotions, our struggles, they point to the reality that there is a God that's good and high and transcendent enough that we can bring our accusations say, God, this isn't right. If you really think that things in this world ought to be different, and you should, and you would be right, then you have strong evidence that there's a God who can provide answers. And so the right response is to go to God for answers. Right? Do we let suffering melt our heart or harden it? Okay, don't let... Your problems with evil and suffering make you turn away from God because then you're definitely not going to get answers. God can handle our accusations. So let's go to God. And if we listen, we'll get answers. So maybe not always the answers we want, just the way we want, but we'll get a response. And so that's where we turn now. So finally, God's response. So Pharaoh has escalated evil, the people have responded, they accuse God of wrongdoing. How does God respond? Two ways. So first, God's not surprised. He says, now you will see. All right, so he's essentially saying, I knew that Pharaoh would escalate. That's part of the plan. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Only now can you really see my wonders. so God is going to produce a great deliverance. He's not surprised by what happens. Second, God reveals himself more deeply. So God says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. God is saying, through the events occurring now, you are going to get a deeper revelation of who I am than your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. Okay? They knew the God Most High. But they did not know him as the God who brought his people out of slavery. They did not know him as the God who regimes, as the God who takes an enslaved people as his own and says, "Your family, you're my firstborn son. But God is saying, now you will. God's answer is, this is happening so you will really know who I am. This is happening so I can reveal more of myself to you. God allows Pharaoh to escalate the evil so that God can show his power over evil. God allows the evil so he can judge it. Evil does its worst, but it can't stop God. Right, You will know that God is more powerful than the worst evil can do only when evil does its worst. So that's the answer God gives. You will really know me. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people, you know, we say in our hearts, you know, not good enough. Not a good enough answer. Because a lot of people, the suffering you've experienced or the suffering you see, you know, Getting a deeper revelation of God's wonders just doesn't seem like a good enough reason. In fact, that's exactly how the people respond here. In verse 9, um, they, right, it says, Moses spoke thus to the people, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So they get the answer from God and they're like, no way. All right, they basically say, We'd rather we didn't have the suffering, even if it means we don't get to know who God really is. I'd rather we didn't have the slavery, even if that means God doesn't get revealed as the person who redeems us out of slavery. You know, if you're too broken and burdened, you might not like God's answer. So let me gently tell you this. The people prefer their slavery because they don't yet know who God is. Right. God hasn't fully revealed himself yet they haven't been set free they haven't seen god's wonders they don't know what it means to know this god so it's not a surprise that hearing this will end in knowing god more that just doesn't sound good enough to them when your spirit is broken when you've experienced the harshness of evil in this world right what would be enough to make up for it right what could heal your broken spirit you know, as we continue this sermon through ex- this series through Exodus, we're going to see the unparalleled wonders of God um, that he works in Egypt. We're going to see God judge the evil of Egypt definitively. We're going to see God set his people free. Um, everything God has promised to do, we're going to see God do. But the Exodus is not the ultimate revelation of who God is and what God is capable of doing. Hundreds of years later, God would allow the evil rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm to throw everything they have at him. God would allow evil to escalate in a way that hadn't happened before. And God would disarm the rulers and he would declare, they're bankrupt. They have no power. At the cross, Jesus didn't just bear the judgment of Rome. He didn't just bear the treatment of the people who unjustly prosecuted and beat and crucified him. He didn't just bear the judgment of the religious elites who said he deserved to die for equating himself with God and so he turned him over to the Romans. And you could easily look at the cross and you could say, the rulers and the authorities of Rome, of the religious elites, as well as their father, the devil, they disarmed Jesus. They stripped him naked. They held him up to open shame. And they celebrated what they thought was their triumph over him. That's what the cross looks like. The cross looks like evil escalated and triumphed over Jesus. But Paul in Colossians 2.15, he talks about what Jesus did on the cross this way. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul says, what looks like evil triumphing, it's actually the greatest defeat of evil that ever occurred. It's only in this horrific act of evil that we see that even death has no power over Jesus. I think about it. How would you know that God has the power to resurrect the dead if Jesus hadn't died? So that's not all. Let me read the earlier verses in Colossians. And you who are dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. What is Paul saying? Like the Israelites, you were once enslaved, but not just to a tyrannical pharaoh. You were enslaved to sin and death. And you were not just under a death sentence. He says you were dead in your sin. And what did God do? He set you free. He forgave you so that sin and death have no claim on you. And now you are alive. You're free and you have life. And the idols in your life have no power over you. Now, you could read this and you can say, how is forgiveness related to disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame. Right? How's that last verse connect to the earlier ones? The only power the enemy has over you is to accuse you. Do you know what the name Satan means? Accuser. Remember the accusations of your idols? You aren't good enough. You are idle. You're lazy. You'll never be good enough. You don't belong here. You aren't in, the in group. You aren't really one of them. You're wretched. God could never love you. God hates you. No. Those words have no power over you because of the cross. Jesus nailed those accusations to the cross and he declares canceled. Your every failure has been forgiven. You are not enough has been replaced with my work for you is enough. It's finished. It's enough. Don't listen to the lies. The accuser has nothing on you. Don't listen to the lies. Your idols tell you that God's word is lies and they increase your burdens to distract you. But God tells you that the accusations are lies. And he takes your burdens to set you free. He says you're forgiven. No more burdens. No more lies. God's response to evil is to work his wonders and to declare to you who he is. To reveal himself more deeply in jesus we see god is not immune to our pain and suffering right the answer to why does god allow pain and suffering cannot be that god doesn't care jesus reveals that there's a god who takes on the suffering and evil in this world all of the evil and suffering that god allows he experienced all of it he's not immune he's so committed to ensuring that all the evil in this world ultimately declares the wonder of God, that God himself bore all the infinite costs of allowing it. God knows there's a cost to allowing evil, so he paid it. In the book, The Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes, humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. This is the hope of the resurrection. The cross and the resurrection justify all that has happened. God paid the price so that we can be fully known and fully loved. And one day we will fully know and perfectly love the God who paid it all. Let's pray. God, we pray for your power to set us free from the lines that we hold on to. Lord, I pray that your word would be magnified, that your truth, your word over us, who you are and who you've made us to be and who we are in Christ, God, that that truth um, would be the foundation of our lives. God, that you would set us free from the things that oppress us. God, make us full of your love and your joy um, to bear fruit in sharing love and joy with others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.